Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. So we have got a, a line in the back of the room, but I think I'm going to go ahead and start us, if that's okay. Um, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm a research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program. Diamonds, all right? Go ahead. Okay, great. Um, so here at WAP, we are committed to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And um, one that's a very ambitious agenda. <laughs> we we attempt to contribute to it in many ways, but one way is really through this seminar, which has been a space for um, uh, student, faculty, staff dialogue, but also outreach around some of the um, leading ideas um, related to gender and public policy that are out there in the research community. We have now, I have in, uh, do I have in my notes? Yeah, um, WAPS podcast, so these talks are all being um, broadcast um, through, the, through podcasts, and I uh, will now start formally welcoming our podcast community that has downloaded our seminars over 11,000 times. So we think we're sitting in a small seminar room, but we're really having a much broader conversation, which is very exciting. I bet Carrie's got a lot of Anyway, so I have have the honor today to introduce Mary Britton. She is the Reischauer Institute Professor of Sociology, and she's the um, the chair of the sociology department here at Harvard. Uh, Mary is a world-renowned sociologist, comparativist, uh, studying gender inequality and labor markets. And uh, we learn something every time you come, so we're thrilled. We're looking forward to your talk. Thank you very much. Maybe join me again. It's always a great pleasure to come over here and speak to a different audience. And uh, as department chair, I don't have much time for research, so it's a double pleasure to be able to take an hour and a half and just talk about uh, research. Um, I'm going to present this paper which is co-authored with a graduate student in our department, Carly Knight. And Carly is really the technician on this paper in in all of the good senses of the word. This is quite a technical paper. So I'm just warning you that if you have technical questions, I may just have to send you the paper. Um, Because Carly is the the real brains uh, behind that part of it. But we worked together because Carly is a is also a comparativist. She's more of a political sociologist. And as Hannah said, I work on gender inequality and labor markets. And uh, we started talking about um, gender egalitarianism and how much gender egalitarian thought is really increasing or stalling or whatever. And we decided to work together on this paper on Europe. The paper, I'm happy to say, has been accepted in the American Journal of Sociology. And it is such a meaty, long paper that we actually have to trim it for the American Journal of Sociology, which Carly's in the middle of doing right now. We actually have too many analyses in the paper, but that's that's because of her brilliance. And she's actually the first author on the paper. And she's in Chicago today, so she couldn't come with me to field um, technical questions. Um, but I think we have, um, hopefully, a lot of interesting theoretical um, questions and empirical results, which I'll be explaining to you. So first of all, um, we know that 
of course, there's been tremendous change in women's labor force participation and the rise of gender egalitarian attitudes in the post-industrial world. But we also know that from the early to mid-1990s on, there's been a lot of discussion about how the gender role revolution has really stalled. So if we look at a lot of indicators, such as uh, the male-female wage gap, we see that the pace of change has really slowed down in the narrowing of the male-female wage gap since, again, the early to mid-90s. There's also a real slowdown in the decline of occupational sex segregation. So labor forces in, in every European and uh, North American and East Asian country remain highly, highly segregated occupationally by sex. Um, there's very little movement of men into traditionally female occupations. Most of the um, decline of occupational sex segregation in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s was really women moving into male, so-called male-dominated occupations because women were gaining greater human capital and because men's work tends to pay more. So it's very appealing for women to try to enter it. And of course, it tends to be higher prestige. Very little movement of men into traditionally female occupations. And also, as we all know probably from personal experience, there's been a very slow pace of change in gender roles in the household. So in the US, men put in slightly more housework time than they used to and more childcare time. Um, but women are still working very long hours in the market and at home. Um, there's also been pretty perceptible slowing in a change in gender role attitudes towards egalitarianism. Um, so it's a big puzzle in the gender inequality literature why we've seen this slowdown. A lot of people are trying to write um, about it. So what Carly and I um, decided to do was to look, we, we generally don't study attitudes, she and I, but we decided to look at how ideologies are changing. Um, and we know that there's been a big decline in beliefs based on male primacy. So the belief that men are better for women than women. The belief that men are just more qualified overall, right, for um, executive jobs and so forth than women. There's been, there's been a very noticeable decline in this belief that men are just overall better. But there's been also, together with that, and, and quite um, distinct from it, there's been not such a decline in beliefs that men and women are really different from each other, you know, or have different traits, gender essentialism, right? So these are really quite different dimensions. And a lot of this is talked about really beautifully in a book that's getting, I guess, a little bit old now, but Charles and Bresky, Occupational Ghettos, um, which is about occupational sex segregation in um, in post-industrial countries, uh, Maria Charles and David Gresky. But anyway, they make this distinction between gender essentialism and male primacy. And gender essentialism is not necessarily antithetical to egalitarian beliefs. You know, we can believe that men and women are have some differences in sort of their inherent traits and capabilities, but they're equal, right? It's a that's a possibility. That's a theoretical possibility. 
So Carly and I, in our work, are pulling apart these different dimensions. Um, because modernization theory, which I shouldn't use as a straw person, but I am going to kind of use it as a straw person, you know, really has this extraordinarily optimistic view that societies will move from the, quote, traditional to the modern, and that includes egalitarianism. And that really implies quite a unilineal um, change, unilinear, I put here. So there are two poles. There are traditional gender role attitudes, and there are modern or egalitarian ones. And we think that's just really faulty, because that doesn't accommodate for these ideas about gender essentialism and how they may be compatible to some extent with egalitarianism. And we also feel that um, that kind of unilinear logic leaves out another very important dimension, which is sort of the, the should of, or have to or ought to of gender roles. So we make a distinction between ideologies that say, well, men and women um, should do the following, and ideologies that particularly say, for women, they have choices. I mean, men don't usually have choices in any of these ideologies. Men work, and you know, it's really great if they contribute to the household in other ways besides income, right? If they do household work and childcare. But there is a um, uh, sort of array of viewpoints about what women should do. Should, should women, to be good feminists, work full time? Or not? Or can a woman be a feminist, is, you know, to put it crudely, can a woman be a feminist and choose to be a stay-at-home mom, right? So there are varieties of feminism. Um, and these, we think, have a lot to do with whether, you know, people regard women as having valid choices or things that they really have to do. To be a feminist, you have to participate in the labor market and do whatever you need to do at home. So these two dimensions, then, are um, normative, kind of normative component of choice or, or have to and gender essentialism. So first of all, we ask you know, a very basic question. It's kind of a straw person question because we know the answer to it. Are traditional or so-called male breadwinner, female caregiver, gender role attitudes declining everywhere in the post-industrial world? And the answer is yes, they are. The real question is what's replacing them? You know, is it this, this straightforward gender egalitarian position that we think of where men and women both do everything and are kind of replicates of each other, that kind of egalitarianism, or <coughs> are there other kinds of egalitarianism, which is what we argue and try to measure. So I'm going to zoom to the data and methods. Um, I want to leave plenty of time for, for conversation and um, discussion because I, I anticipate that there'll be quite a lot. If not, I can just keep talking. Yeah, Is it okay? Did you say yeah. you're okay? Open to question. Yeah. So are you setting up an argument for a kind of pseudo-egalitarianism? No, we, we, call, we identify three kinds of egalitarianism. We believe that these are egalitarianisms. 
So we wouldn't we wouldn't say pseudo. Okay. Yeah, but we call them. We have adjectives to describe okay. <laughs> the different. But kinds. so you put your, your genuine, the genuine egalitarian. Pardon? Yeah, I get you. Thank yeah, you. three. We we're going to identify three types. Um, now, this is a sadness for me since I work on East Asia. <laughs> And this is a paper entirely on Europe. Um, I have another paper I can talk about East Asia a little bit um, along these lines, but my other paper that includes East Asia, we had to make some data compromises, and, and Carly is not into data and measurement compromises, so we had to, um, she, she insisted that we stick to um, the high quality data that we have for 17 European countries. So we used the World Value Survey and then European Value Survey, which has um, the same questions, fortunately, um, for uh, <coughs> countries. And we were looking over a 20-year period, not quite up to the present, but 1990 to 2010. And what we did was to take all the items um, in the World Value <coughs> Survey and the European Value Survey that really have to do with men's and women's roles in the labor market and in the family. Now there are lots of other gender role attitude questions about, you know, do you think women should um, occupy more political positions um, and so forth. We didn't take those. Ours are really focused on this work and family um, set of concerns. Partly because a lot of the gender role attitude literature recognizes, at least pays lip service to the fact that there are a lot of different dimensions that are being captured. Um, some people say, some people have chosen to just look at statements that have to do with the home, you know, women's role in the home. And then others say, okay, and, and actually those people often say, well, we're going to do that. We're going to look at those attitude items, and we'll look at the attitude items that have to do with women's labor market <coughs> and distinguish between those two. We don't want to do that. We want to look at the intersection of these. Um, but we're not so concerned in this paper about other gender role attitudes, such as, do you think we should have a woman president, and so forth. So it's really work and family. So first of all, um, this is a, um, and unfortunately, I should also say, up until very, very recently, you know, in the gender role attitude um, data, there's almost nothing about what men should do. You know, it's all about what women should and shouldn't do, which is a problem because, you know, we, we want to be analyzing what people think about men's roles too, but there's a real asymmetry here, and it's only very recently that um, some of the attitude survey, surveys have started talking more about men. But as you'll see, most of these have to do with women. A working mother can establish just as warm and secure relationship with her children as a mother who does not work. Being a housewife is just as fulfilling as working for pay. A lot of assumptions built into that, personal fulfillment. Both husband and wife should contribute to household income. The job is all right, but what most women really want is a home and children. Having a job is the best way for a woman to be an independent person, and when jobs are scarce, men should have more right to a job than women. So very um, breadwinner, you know, oriented statement. And so the World Value Survey and the European Value Survey ask individuals in different countries to, um, as I put here, indicate their strength of agreement or disagreement on a Likert scale 
um, with each of these attitudes and a bunch of other attitudes that we're not analyzing here. Mary, do you know anything about how these questions or these, I and mean, not even questions, that kind of comments, observations came about? And maybe you don't. I mean, you just use what they have. But it's just, you know, it's just interesting that yeah. it's just an interesting question, right? Should we use stereotypical questions, <coughs> affirming the stereotypes? And I think they go back and forth. So they mostly do. stereotype. Yeah, but exactly. once in a while, they say, you know, having a job is the best way for a woman to be an independent person, which is probably counter stereotypical. Yeah, I, know, I was just wondering what, what, what thought went into how we framed the questions. Yeah, comments. I know. There, some of these <coughs> questions are, well, I haven't shown some of the most problematic ones. We didn't do <laughs> some of the most problematic. The, the one that my favorite is, um, oh, let me see if I can remember. It's in the World Value Survey. And it's interpreted entirely different in Northern Europe than in mm. North America. It has to do with. Sianna, if you remember the question, you can tell me. It's about single. It's about single mothers, I think. And it anyway, it's read totally different in countries that have very high rates of cohabitation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. and those that don't. So, but anyway, um, I don't know. These have been used um, in the World Value Survey over many, many yes. ways. And of course, we, we don't want them to change, right? And we don't want them to change, so we're kind of stuck with yes. them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that, in essence, gets to my comment. Um, yeah. But very interesting to see how it's changed over time, which I know you'll walk us through. But the survey definitely sets up very clearly that women's status is in question and to yeah. some extent in in jeopardy and is worth scrutinizing and as you um, put sort of the flip of this out before that men's status is by definition. Yeah, yeah. That their maleness according to the survey comes with position in society which doesn't need to be questioned um, or in conflict. Yeah, yeah. And you know that probably comes, the World Values Survey goes back to the late 80s or around 1990. Um, and it would be very interesting to define uh, a second survey if one were able to do it with the same level yeah. of coverage <coughs> over time that the questions didn't lead the audience by Into definition a, to have yeah. those questions yeah. around female status, but if both, um, but if gender became subsumed more into attributes and there was a way of, in essence, separating out gender from the question. What would be an example? Are you comfortable with the notion that all family members have an equal right to participation yeah. in wage? Yeah, yeah. But in essence, um, to take us several steps beyond the notion that gender defines behaviors right. as opposed to behaviors exist in and of themselves and don't have to be attached to gender to have validity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, as I said, some of the more recent surveys, the, the European value surveys, have added questions. And actually, um, maybe I'll come back to that later, because in, our, in Carly's thoroughness, we did look at some recent surveys, and I can tell you some, some uh, I can give you some results. But since they're not the main results, I'll save that till later, and we can talk about them. But there are some new questions in European uh, value survey that addresses men's role. Just one more thought. I mean, if you go back to the to those 
questions. If you just replace woman with men, I mean, you just notice how, yeah, you know, we, we really don't have those questions for men. Like, what would be the equivalent? Is that about, you know, do you expect um, men to be still breadwinners? You know, what, what do men need for their identity? You know, but uh, this idea of, uh, Working father can establish just as I know. Relationship with his children as a father who does not work. Mm -hmm. Or being, I mean, a, being a house husband is just as fulfilling <laughs> as working for pay. There are questions that have to do more with um, marriage. So, and those are asked in a gender symmetrical way. So, um, and so we didn't include the marriage question here, but um, you know it's important for women to to marry in order to have a fulfilling life. And then there's a question for men, too. It's important for men to marry. But that doesn't really so much have to do with, again, the sort of balance between work and home. So we tried to focus only on those. And indeed, there weren't any for men. Um, This one is interesting because it can be interpreted in many ways. But anyway, you'll see you'll see what we found. So we have the two main um, hypotheses that um, that we're not going to see this binary between traditionalism on the one hand and one kind of egalitarianism on the other, you know, as in two poles of a continuum, but instead that we are expecting to find that individuals in the societies we're looking at are going to cluster into different groups. Um, and these groups we're theoretically predicting are, of course, going to have to do with gender egalitarianism, gender equality, but also with essentialism. You know, women, women do this because they're women. And the normative requirement that, you know, you should do this or, um, or not. And we only expect to see that, for sure, traditionalism has declined in all countries. But we don't expect to see necessarily that the same type of egalitarianism or types of egalitarianism are you know, sprouting up in all different countries. And I'm, I'm going to not show you the results for all 17 countries because I can predict what will happen if I do. There'll be a question on Austria and a question on France and a question on Germany and a question on Sweden and so forth. So I'm going to only show you results from a few countries um, because otherwise we'll talk all day about each country, which would be very interesting, but we'll run out of time. So what we used was an exploratory, i.e. inductive method, latent class analysis, which really um, groups individuals together into clusters that seem to make sense on these um, seven attitude items. So it's completely inductive. It's not uh, you know, theoretically motivated. And what you do is, look for the most parsimonious solution. So it could be a two-class solution, or a three-class solution, or a five-class solution, latent class or group. Um, and the most parsimonious solution um, we found was a four-class solution. So now I'm going to go through um, the general attitude class as well. 
lo and behold, there is something called traditional attitudes, right? And it's very much what, what you would think. The others I'm going to give you some um, greater description of because they're much less obvious because they are variants of egalitarianism, types of egalitarianism. I just have to get my cheat sheet on this so I can explain them well. Um, the second one, in, in a different paper, I've called this full egalitarian, but this is what most of us would think of as being an egalitarian, straight egalitarian position. Um, so this is most closely associated with thinking of gender egalitarianism um, in the following way. Men and women should both work and contribute to family income. Um, having a job is the best way for a woman to be independent. This group scores high on that. Working mothers can indeed establish just as close a relationship with their children as non-working mothers. Uh, strong disagreement that being a housewife is as fulfilling as working for pay. So it very much emphasizes men's and women's, um, you know, joint uh, participation in the labor market. Um, and rejects attitudes that are much more gender essentialist, um, having to do with women's <coughs> place in the home. Very strong disagreement in this class, for instance, that men have more right to a job than women in times of economic recession. So basically, the, what, these, what the technique does, latent class analysis, is it looks at probabilities, the probability that you have a belief in each of, on each of these seven attitudes and again forms clusters of individuals. And then you have to make sense as the analyst out of the clusters. And you know, conceivably they could be nonsensical clusters. So you have to figure out are these really valid? And we did a lot of checks for that later in the paper. To We believed them but we wanted to really feel like we believe that these are real. And you have to do that with latent class analysis or other techniques such as cluster analysis because, again, you're not being driven by theory. You're just being driven by what the data are doing. All right, so the next type of egalitarianism is what we call dual responsibility egalitarianism. And in the entire sample, the 17 countries pooled together at the three time points, so in the most sort of aggregated version of our data set, um, let me give you the percentages. Traditionalism, 23% of the total sample. Work egalitarianism, 29%. Dual responsibility, 30%. So these are both, they're all quite large. Um, but again, I'll show you how they're changing over time. So dual responsibility egalitarianism, of course we played around a lot with the names of these to try to figure out what would really convey the, um, the sense of the group. This is defined by the dual beliefs that women should be active, should be active members of the labor force and that the family and home comprise essential elements of women's identity. 
So women have a dual responsibility to work, to contribute to the family income, the household income, but there, there's a strong element of gender essentialism that women need to do you know, what they need to do at home. So very strong agreement among people in this class that both husband and wife should contribute to household income, that working mothers can establish just as close a relationship with their children as non-working mothers. Um, however, in other attitudes that you know, really indicate women should work, however, this group um, has much more what we would call traditional attitudes than the work egalitarians about the necessity of home and family for women's identity, for women's essential identity and fulfillment. So they strongly feel women need a family and children in order to be fulfilled. Strongly agree that while a job is all right, most women really want a home and children. Um, and they do feel, by and large, that staying at home um, could be fulfilling for women. So it's very pro-work, but there's also this strong strain of gender essentialism related to family. Hannah? This is one of those ones where you really miss the guys. Like, was there I any know. way of testing that? Because it's hard to know whether or not it's like traditional family values. <coughs> Do you know what I mean? Whether Or whether it's specifically maternal norms. Like it's, it would be, is there any way of looking maternal. with the data? Yeah, well, that's because you only have data on maternal. You don't have yeah. a set of items. I'll like would they, is there, is there any other, I wonder if there's any other item where you could test whether these people would also agree well, that men should put their families before their work. So like that's a working me. class thing. You're, you know? you're convincing me that I should go to the auxiliary results at the end. Oh, okay. But these two <laughs> comments are convincing me with the checks that we did with some of the new attitude questions in the European Value Survey, I'll do that. I'll come, come back to that. Mm -hmm. Is this what, um, like Phyllis Moen has called neo-traditionalist pattern, where you might work part, do you see these women working part-time? Do you see um, evidence of more labor force? You know, that they're employed often, but it's, it's yeah. sometimes secondary to family responsibilities. Yeah. yeah, that would be consistent. There's, there's not a, there's not, you know, none of those items asked about full-time versus part-time. Mm -hmm. But, um, so I think it, in, it includes part-time conceivably. And then the last one is what we call flexible egalitarian. Again, in a different paper with another co-author, we called this one choice egalitarian. But this is really um, the kind of variant of egalitarianism the smallest class, it's only 18% of the total pooled sample. This is um, really the kind of egalitarian position that says that women have choices and that all choices are valid. It's the smallest class. Um, so disagreement by and large that both men and women should contribute to income. Um, high agreement that working mothers can establish just as good a relationship with their children as stay-at-home mothers, um, but also high agreement that being a housewife can be as fulfilling as paid labor. So, you know, I think this, to me this sounds 
very familiar living in 2016 U.S. Um, and my, my anecdotal example is generally the, um, the women that I interacted with when my daughter was in Girl Scouts, you know, as she was growing up. And a bunch of these moms, um, we all get together every few months and have dinner together without our daughters, mm -hmm. since our daughters are now all in college. And there's one woman in this bunch who's a stay-at-home mom. She has not worked since the day she got married. She used to be in quite a high position at NPR. She's very, very smart. And of course, she's the volunteer mom. You know, she's the one who ran the PTA while the rest of us were, you know, coming to our jobs during the day and throwing things together for the Girl Scout meeting that we were supposed to be in charge of. Deborah was the one that ran everything. Um, and we love her. You know, we don't talk behind her back and say, it's so terrible, you know, that she's, she only has one kid. It's not like she had four kids and had to quit working because of all the childcare demands. But, you know, she made her choices. She seems very happy with them. Um, and then throughout our group of nine moms, you know, there are those who quit work when their kids were young and have all gone back into the labor force, either part-time or full-time. There are the other ones who worked all the way through, you know, 60 plus hour work weeks or whatever. And there's just this variety and there's not a, there's not a tangible disapproval of any of these lifestyles. Now we're all, of course, completely upper middle class. This is Lexington that we live in and it's like, you know, very, very upper middle class, very white and Asian. But anyway, that's what I think of when I think of this. Like, yeah, women have, you know, viable choices and by making this choice rather than the other it doesn't mean that they're not feminine you know not feminists or that they're somehow anti-feminist but this is the smallest class and unfortunately we don't have the u.s in this paper it is in another paper um, but the data were are kind of compromised okay so that's what it looks like across all the countries three data points 1990, 2000, and 2010. Okay. Um, so I have one clarifying yeah. question. I don't want to spend too much time explaining the adjectives in front of So for instance, in the last one, did you debate about calling it individualism versus flexible egalitarian? Um, and for the third one, dual desire versus dual responsibility. So this one can't be desire because it's got should. Okay. Women should have the home as a priority, they should also should be working. So this one is, this one is very hard on women because it's like, okay, you're out in the labor force, but you can't abandon your essential responsibilities at home. You are the primary caregiver, da, 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 right? So this one, the responsibility part of it is important. This one, yeah, we didn't we didn't think about individualistic. It could be. We thought about flexible or choice. We can still change them because the page proofs are <laughs> still. We, we haven't done the page proofs. So we just couldn't decide. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers, the percentages that you gave, that yeah. was overall, did you find that, and maybe you're going to talk about this, uh, yeah. did I'm they cluster like by, I'm not going to talk about individual countries, but did you find, yeah. okay. Yeah. So first let me show you the um, big graph for all countries. So again, we have three data points, 1990, 2000, and 2010. 
And this is why the definitions are so important. First of all, look what's happened to the prevalence of traditional attitudes. And this, this pattern is visible in every country, although more strongly in some rather than others. So 40% of the total pooled sample in 1990, 40% of individuals believed in these traditional values. And now it's way less than 10%. So that's, you know, that's what people really talk about, right? Okay, well that means we've swung towards egalitarianism. Yeah, we have, but three different types. So dual responsibility, which is the one that I just said is hardest on women, you know, that's really gone up. So it's the idea that yes, women should be working, but that doesn't mean that they can cut back or um, you know, it doesn't take away from their fundamental responsibilities at home. Um, and then work egalitarian is the most kind of complete prototypical egalitarianism that men and women, again, you know, although we don't have a lot of data in these questions about men, but um, women and men have equal rights and equal, you know, responsibilities. That one has gone way up. And then this one, um, went up and it's it's just not very prevalent um, the one that you know that I really associate kind of with the upper middle class in the US mm -hmm. can you talk to the economy behind it at that point Pardon? can you talk to the economic conditions behind so what was happening between 2000 and 2010 for each of the three top categories well you, you have to look at each country right so you know the ways to really develop there are a lot of ways to develop this paper lots of ways and one of them is to look at the interaction with the economic conditions in a country we're not you know we didn't get into policy here at all obviously there's a big interplay and set of feedback mechanisms between social policies and uh, I'm just thinking though about about um, how you might you might want to go back to work and with the upward sweep when the economy is bad and choose not to um, Again, it's highly variable by country. You know, the, the um, economic recession in Europe hit countries differentially. I mean, it hit all countries, right, in, in, um, around here, but differential impact. Um, so I think this is too aggregated to make that kind of. Um, Okay, so here I'm going to show you a few examples, and they probably won't be the ones you want, but um, again, remind you of the classes. Um, I'm going to show you two first um, Eastern European classes. So these are the, um, and we have other Eastern European countries in the sample, but Poland and Hungary are quite typical. These are actually the countries where you see the sharpest and strongest decline in traditionalism. Um, and what do you see replacing it? Mm -hmm. You see dual responsibility egalitarianism. Women should work and they mm -hmm. should, you know, fulfill their, their wife and mother responsibilities at home. Right? Very, very strong. And then <coughs> flexible egalitarianism, there's just almost nothing going on in that group. Um, and work egalitarian full <coughs> egalitarianism, typical egalitarianism has gone up, but the most important is this, um, you know, these dual demands on women for work and home. 
Germany I picked because it's quite a different pattern. So egalitarianism in our typical kind of way of thinking about it has gone up a lot. Um, traditionalism wasn't nearly as high as in the Eastern European countries at, in 1990, but it's gone down as it has in all countries. And again, this flexible egalitarian is almost non-existent. Um, Spain, which is one of my favorite countries because I'm doing a lot of work on it with my postdoc, Siana. Um, Spain, you see a rise in work egalitarianism. We think we see that tremendously in a lot of qualitative data that we have on Spain. They're just a very strong um, imperative that both men and women should work. A lot of that, we think, is driven by dreadful, dreadful economic circumstances. So for sure, the economy you know, is having some effect on these, probably, and um, anyway. Um, and you know, traditionalism down. Italy is rather different. I'm not going to show you Italy, but it's a bit different. Denmark, um, work egalitarianism, as, as in the other um, <coughs> Nordic countries, very high. Both people work, both people participate at <coughs> home. So the choice egalitarianism, or, or flexible egalitarianism, is always pretty low. Um, I'm going to tell you at the end or the pseudo end, because then we'll talk about some of these auxiliary analyses. Um, I'm going to tell you maybe some possible implications of all of this. Because here, you know, this is basically a descriptive analysis. This is, we're not predicting a cause from these patterns, right? I mean, an, an effect, yes? Mm -hmm. I know that you didn't want to have a discussion on each of the cases, yeah. <laughs> however. You can talk about these, but I'm not going to tell you the other 12. <laughs> I was very curious about Germany um, because 1990 was just after the unification, yeah. and I know that most of the studies actually take apart east and west yeah. for the for for good reasons, I believe. So I was just curious because the, here the pattern I find really startling. I, mm. the, that work again is the is the strongest one. I mean, policies are really dual responsibility. I know, you know and and so mm. if if people's ideas about that are so strongly different, and I'm really curious if that's an effect from East and West being It could be. Together. That's a very good point. We should we should look at that more. Yeah. That's a very, dis that's a very distinguish East and West Germany in your data? I think so, yeah. yeah. I, I, would, I, yeah. Would I think that's that. a very good point. I, I agree with you that it, it is a bit surprising. You would think that this one would be the more prevalent one. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you see, I, I'm not sure I can see that from the data here, but I'm wondering whether we see convergence across countries. No. So as a one, we don't. No, no that's what I, no. so a bit, uh, <coughs> in terms of traditionalism, maybe we do. Yep. It's gone down everywhere, but other than that, you say it's don't. either dual responsibility or work egalitarian, and that is very different in different countries. Yeah, and then this one yeah. is just kind of, you know, bumping along yeah. in most countries and not being very prevalent. Yeah, so the part of the analysis that AJS, the AJS editors want us to cut is the analysis of convergence, because it uses, mm -hmm. or divergence, because it uses another method, it's very, gets very technical. I didn't put that graph in the PowerPoint because we're going to cut it, but you do see a fanning out. So you, you the, the sort of big takeaways I, I can get to 
immediately, you know, of course, decline in traditionalism, right? Absolutely. Um, but that traditionalism hasn't been replaced, as we've seen, by kind of liberal egalitarianism that we typically think of, right? Men and women are equal, and they do the same things. Instead, um, the decline in traditionalism has been re replaced by what we see as three quite distinct classes of egalitarianism, and this differs across countries. So by 2010, we do not see countries converging on <coughs> one um, on one of these. They're fanning out. They're continuing to fan out. So, you know, it does open up the possibility of a lot more papers to really explore these things. However, Carly, you know, the data have to be so <coughs> sound for Carly to, to work with them. I don't know if I can convince her to, and this is not even related to her dissertation. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not too sanguine about working with her on more papers, although I would love to. Um, but, I mean, you work with her and you know that the results hold water. There's, there's just no ambiguity. Um, so let me talk about, just for a second, the auxiliary results, which a lot of people asked about. Um, again, in, 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 um, in the vein that we don't know much from that seven general attitude questions about expectations for men's roles and that the European Values Survey has started um, in recent waves asking about men's roles. So we did a regression analysis um, on, I, I wish I had put this table in the PowerPoint now, but anyway. Um, we have a bunch of gender role attitudes um, that in the, these later European values waves that do have to do with men's roles. And so we, what we did was to use our categories, our classes, to see how well they predict those attitudes. And we controlled, of course, in our regression for the sex of the individual. By the way, you really don't see much if you do the analysis separately by sex. There's really not much difference in men's and women's attitudes. Um, anyway, we can, had a lot of demographic controls in the equation, level of education, married or not, religion, income level, you know, a lot of demographic variables, and then we had our four classes. So um, here are some of the attitude items that have recently become available that we use as dependent variables. Sharing short chores in marriage is important. So, you know, traditional, of course, extremely negative relationship to that. Um, work egalitarian, extremely strong. Um, flexible egalitarian, the one, the class that's small, negative relationship to sharing chores. So, you know, if women choose to, women, it's up to women, but sharing chores is not a big, um, should. Um, men should take some responsibility for home and children. Of course, very strong negative relationship to traditional attitudes, very strong positive relationship to the work egalitarian attitudes, um, negative to flexible egalitarian, um, and so forth. Um, let's see. Well, 
I could I could pass this around, but it's a set of regression equations. But anyway, we did try to use these new general. Well, so your comparison is is that what it is? Your because you're missing one of your categories when you're reading them. I I could be saying that. dual responsibility. So the dual responsibility is your comparison. We actually looked at the relationship. I, I'm not sure how she did this, but she looked at the relationship to that one too. To that one, that was the base. Yeah. So that's why it's not. Question sort of about yeah. um, for for the ones that you just read all were sort of in the category of should and I'm curious about this the flexible one it seems like me there there's sort of two different ways that I think that people could yeah. have fallen into the flexible category one is if they think that women should have choices about whether or not they work or um, thing whereas men sort of assume that they're working the other one is just that there's no should and so I'm curious whether any of these um, questions that refer that are a to little men. to men, whether there are some of them that are not the should ones and where the flexible ones end up on those. Not really. Um, sharing chores is important, so that's kind of <coughs> should, right? Men should take some same same, I'm sorry, I think I said some, same responsibility for home and children. That's should. Fathers are as suitable to look after children as women are. Yeah, that one, I would, so that, sort of, the way that I view my flexible, because I think I would consider myself flexible in the sense of, I think that it's sort of an individual couple's decision how they manage it. So that one, if it's about this idea of it's up to people to make their own decisions, I would expect them to agree if it's, a, if it's really just about how they view women's gender roles and maybe not. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. And are all the questions in the survey heteronormative? <laughs> well, we, yeah, we took that as an assumption. Yeah. That's a strong, I mean, that's a strong implicit assumption. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when looking at the four classes, were you able to disaggregate the data by age? And if so, what do the differences tell us about the direction of these proportions? Yeah, yeah, we did look at, at it by age, and um, and it's not, um, and we also controlled so that, you know, if populations are becoming younger or older, it's not affecting <coughs> the um, proportions, but, um, <coughs> I mean, traditionalism just declines across the board, mm -hmm. but of course some of the the oldest traditionalists are probably dying off. <laughs> right. I'm just curious right. to know, like, if the if the younger generation, if there's like a very stark difference in, say, the the flexible egalitarian versus the dual. Uh, That's a good question. I, I I can't remember what we found. I should go back and look at that. That would be very interesting. Um, because we didn't, you know, this the, again, the purpose of this paper to put it in kind of pejorative terms is very descriptive, you know, to see if there, what kind of change is going on, how can we model the change itself, are there different types of egalitarianism, but absolutely one of the directions that we can go is, well, who in particular holds these different beliefs? And that's very easy to do with everything we've done with the data, because after all, these these gender role attitude classes are made up of individuals. It's very easy to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just building off that, I was I was wondering the same thing. If you look at the people who were 30 in 1990, and then 
appeal to the people who were 30 years old in 1990 and then look at how they responded to the questions 10 years on. That would help you understand if it's just different people or if it's the same generation that actually changed their perception. Right. So is it just a, a different new generation? Or is, is it actually an attitude to Well, since we have a control for age composition, it is a, it is an attitude change overall. Yeah. Is anyone else? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's not fair. I keep asking questions, but um, can I go back to your um, countries? Yeah, as long as you don't ask me for others, because I did not. No, 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 no. I just this is actually, and I think this is outside the bounds of the data that you have. But I just, just sort of, for the sake of being creative, spurred by your ideas. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the things that I wonder about is whether or not these might, in future research, you could look at whether they're correlated with the gender segregation of labor. Yeah. So you might expect. So actually, looking at Denmark, right? I thought maybe originally listening to you that dual responsibility would be associated with. Um, uh, gender segregation of labor, but I know the Nordic countries are actually highly segregated. So yeah. then it made me wonder, well, maybe actually it's easier to be work egalitarian. I mean, it reduces right. your conflict if, when your attitudes toward work egalitarianism if women, men and women do different things at work. Yeah, everybody you know, so, works, but yeah, they do everybody different works, things. but they do yeah. different things. So we, it's all fine. It's all good. Yeah, um, I think and so. Then, I think that's because the work egalitarianism is by far the highest in. Yeah, in but, the Nordic countries. But then, and then maybe maybe another way of looking at um, but gender is, segregation it is, is equality on paper. It is equality, right? Well, it's, right? it's just it's just very right. It's global, right? It's globally uh, equal, right? Equal opportunity, <laughs> assuming no right. inherent, yeah, right. implicit bias. But um, right. the, um, <laughs> but the uh, the because um, everybody then, works, yeah, and everybody spends time at home. But then, but then I was thinking about what about if you could also look at the dispersion of. Um, percentage of time in the workplace. So like there, you know what I mean, so that the, whether or not that you might see more variation between men, like so with a dual responsibility, maybe you don't see this gender, se gender segregation of work tasks, is because you're going to get that with the equal attitudes anyways, but maybe what you see is more around this um, percentage of time in the workforce. So Hours? Yeah, hours. So may maybe the dual responsibility would be like a predictor of more women in part-time labor or something like that, you know, or yeah, uh, less security yeah. around, you know, the sort of the social construction of part-time work as yeah. supplemental as opposed to breadwinning or something like that. Although they, they agreed pretty high on the breadwinning. The other the other one, just brainstorming, if you don't mind my, no, no, my no. brainstorming, um, is social class. Do you have anything You're on that? Right. Well, we have, we have income, we have education and income. Oh, yeah. well you could combine those. I mean, those those would be a pretty. But you just control for them, or do you test for them as, like? We really didn't. We, I think, in the early iteration of the paper, we did a lot of analyses looking at, um, yeah, kind of individual level determinants of attitudes. Right, yeah. But then it was just becoming, like, a fifty-page paper. So we took all of that out. But. Um, I think I could persuade Carly to go back to all of that. Again, it's not related to her dissertation. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. you, I mean, you might get better results in the U.S. because there's more income inequality and there's broad. I mean, there's there's there, there are more yeah. gaps between the. But in the U.S., I mean, the really interesting stuff around like work, family values, and like 
blue collar versus white collar when you know extreme work being associated with yeah. sort of elite professional labor right. and how that is right. likely to influence attitudes to work so so you're, if you're in a job that is that is um, you know relatively hour constrained you, you, you have you have a job you're not you're not in an extreme work environment you can have more generous attitudes toward work family and maybe toward egalitarian work family attitudes than you can if yeah. one or both partners are in extreme work type yeah. of situation. I mean, one of the problems, and this is a very, um, very pedestrian sort of problem to bring up, but, you know, once once you start doing those kinds of analyses, when you submit the papers to journals, then they say, well, what's the causal oh, yeah. order, mm -hmm. the causal mechanism, and blah, 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 right, so. No, no, right, directionally, what would you do? Yeah. yeah. It's hard because, I mean, we all know intuitively, right, the gender role attitudes are changing and institutions hopefully are changing, but very slowly, you know, at dinosaur pace. Um, social policies are changing, so, you know, it becomes a big, it's hard. But I, but I, but I do like the comments and value the comments about, you know, unpacking in various ways, unpacking the data. Um, so let me let me give my favorite implication. As a lot of you know, I work on fertility, and um, my favorite kind of implication, which is developed in it in my other paper, is that these gender role classes are predictive of very low fertility or moderate fertility um, in different countries. So the other paper where the data are a little more compromised. Um, in terms of some missing data on some of the attitude questions. That, that paper actually I talked about in, in this venue a couple of years ago. Um, and the gender role attitude classes are really important. So um, the, let me just tell you the, the bottom line from that paper. We're still trying to get that paper published, partly because of the messiness of the um, world values survey. Um, and in that paper, we do have more countries. We have the U.S. and um, East Asia, at least Japan and Korea. So we find that, um, sorry, it's from the other paper. Um, we find that the, the straightforward, so to speak, egalitarianism um, is not predictive of a country's total fertility rate, um, but um, the gender role, we found the same four classes, which is very exciting because it was for 20, 24 countries, including Japan, Korea, US, Australia, um, New Zealand, a couple of other countries. And we found the same four classes, which is great. Um, uh, and it's 1990 to 2010. Um, only using the World Values Survey. But this ideology of um, the dual responsibility, um, so the one that's, you know, become so prevalent in the Eastern European countries, um, well, those are the ones that are shown here, um, is negatively related to total fertility. Sense. Um, 
because women need to be working, but their role as mothers is also very important. And so how do they do both? They do both by having one child instead of two or three. Um, traditionalism, after we control for many things, is not, is not um, you know, the, doesn't predict fertility, total fertility rate, one way or another. Um, but, but this dual kind of burden of work and family, predictably, is depressing fertility in a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, is it the, it, the individual's no. class predict, predicts her fertility? No, or no? total the fertility of the country. The countries with higher dual responsibility? Higher proportion of, yeah, of the uh -huh. population. Okay. So, so a big problem with that paper is lo and behold, we are claiming causality, and it's with aggregate data. Mm -hmm. So we've had the paper rejected. And we redo it, and we send it back you know, to another journal. And what we get is these ideas are fantastic, but you know, how about this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and the methods? So yeah, it's an aggregate analysis. So we look at changes in the total fertility rate of a country over time and then we lag the other variables. Um, and labor market um, regulation, you know, that really makes it, um, such as in Spain, Italy, the Southern European countries, and Japan, labor market regulations that um, really prioritize, prioritize male breadwinners, you know, by protecting their jobs, low fertility. Because it's very hard for women to get into the labor market and stay in the labor market, and it's also very hard for young men to get a toehold in the labor market when um, economic recession hits. Um, so, and we do find um, an interesting interaction between gender role ideology and the structure of the labor market, which of course I love since I study labor markets. What is your interaction? Um, interaction is between. Um, Flexible egalitarianism. Um, it's it's a negative interaction between flexible egalitarianism, which is giving women these choices, and very rigid labor markets, mm. which is not giving them choices. Yeah. So the flexible egalitarianism or choice egalitarianism doesn't really, we argue, doesn't really help women if the labor market rigidities are too strong. Because women still have to choose between the two, between work or home. Um, so even though norms are flexible, um, for a woman, say, in Japan, you know, if she enters the career track, um, she can't cut back. You're one or the other. It's one or the other. It's black or white. Maybe you have talked about this, but I was a little bit confused with this flexible egalitarianism because there has to be a kind of a condition to be able to be flexible. That's right. You know, for the choice. Right? That's right. So, and so class is very it is much negatively related to this man's role in Pardon? having. Uh, it was negatively related to the some of the uh, East European survey about men's, you know, uh, being more active. Um, yeah, I, I, may, I, I might have a kind of a misstep. Yeah, it's not. But, uh, you know, with this condition, 
yeah. you know, uh, compounded with this flexibility. How, how can we kind of make this, your argument about this? With which condition compounded? Yeah, that you have to have kind of an economic stability yeah. Yeah. to be flexible, to have a choice. Right, right. absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. And again, these are, you know, this is country level. Yeah. You know, I didn't show anything by social class, so it's. I totally agree. It's heavily determined or predicted by social but class. But even on an individual level, you've got to have this conditions. Right. By social class yeah, yeah. membership. I mean, your husband has to. But you said that you have control with this education and income level. Well, the con that's the. Those are the regressions that I didn't show you show all of you, but it's across all countries, and yeah, it does control, um, yeah. Interesting. Did you control for employment status as well, or, or did you have aggregate means for the country, like the proportion of women? No, working, no, we didn't use any aggregate means, it's all individual. Well, what 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 do you mean by employment status? Oh, as a worker, mother, or full time woman, right. uh, my answers to that versus like a um, already made choices. Mm -hmm. I I think there's employment, working or non-working. I'm not sure if the the problem with the problem with the World Value Survey and to some extent European values is the demographic variables are pretty bad. The attitude variables, you know, all the emphasis in the World Value Survey, yeah. as we know, is on attitudes about everything in the world. And the demographic variables are just bad. I mean, they're just, there aren't very many of them. Income is missing for many, many people. It, it makes it really hard to do analysis of determinants of attitudes. You can look at what attitudes are correlated with what, but yeah, it's just not set up very well to do you know, look at socio-demographic characteristics. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this kind of core idea that you have of essentialism. And, you know, I'm connecting this to a um, recent piece I saw, the British Airways is now requiring um, the women to wear skirts. <laughs> have you, did you see? No. <laughs> So, you know, the... the well, that's the kind of going back, isn't yes. it? Well, <laughs> only kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, uh, for the ones who are hired before a certain date, it's grandfathered in that they can still wear, wear pants. Why? Why are you so, doing you know, So, to me, this kind of rollback of women's rights and this concept of essentialism that you've come back, you you come up with. I mean, I realize that this survey yeah. is not everything that there no. is in the world that that would indicate what's really going on. But gender um, essentialism is very, very strong. Yeah, and in our qualitative data on the in the low fertility study that I have. We see, we, we embedded in these in-depth interviews that we did in five countries, many world values survey questions. And when you listen to individuals, you realize how inconsistent almost everybody's beliefs are, right? You know, so you hear women, I mean, it's true everywhere, and it's true for us in this room, I'm sure, you know. Um, but you hear a lot of people saying, um, a lot of women saying, yes, I want to, you know, continue working, but then you get to, well, a working mother can establish just as warm and secure a relationship with her child as a non-working mother. 
Yes. And then you get to the question, well, how about for children under three years old? And people start hemming and hawing and saying, somebody should be at home. Well, guess who the someone, <laughs> someone is going to be? You know, there's no choice here. It's the, it's the woman, right? So people are very internally inconsistent, but gender essentialism is alive and well. You know, it doesn't show up like men make better business executives than women. That's a world values question that we asked in our in-depth surveys. I mean, 90% of people say that's baloney. But then, but then some people invoke their own type of gender essentialism and say, well, women are better decision makers. <laughs> women are actually better than men are as executives because da 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 da. So there's, there's a lot of gender essentialism. Um, and sometimes, again, sometimes it conflicts with egalitarianism and sometimes it doesn't. But it's a it's a different dimension. Um, yeah, this dual responsibility egalitarianism. Um, what you just yeah. talked about was yeah. um, descriptive. Women do make better, or women are better decision makers as opposed to women should be. Is there a yeah? Is it the dual? I was hearing you say earlier that the dual has a strong. Yeah, I'm not correlating it with the okay. dual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is much more of a, an anecdote from right. our qualitative study, but we haven't. No, we're, we're but not. But the should is in is embedded in the dual responsibility yeah. notion. Yeah. Should work, and yeah. but they should, should still be, be right. the primary right. person at home. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really this one where choices. You know, women have choices, have broad choices. So is there anywhere the, the, the descriptive, though, you know, it's not that women should be better negotiators, but my observation or my experience is women are, you know, not mine, but the descriptive that there is a difference between men and women as opposed to the normative that there should be a difference between men and women, is that in there anywhere? Well, again, we didn't use questions such as the um, business executives one in right. this paper. Okay. But that question in the World Values Survey is a, is, yeah, it's not a, it's not a normative statement. It's women, men make better business executives than women. So it is a, you know, what is the reality that you believe? So, so that's a good example of a question that's not, it's not normative. It's simply what is your belief about? This? So it could have an essentialism element, but not a normative one. Yeah. It doesn't have a normative one. But it is an interesting question whether they're correlated. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally beyond your paper. Yeah. But is the should and the descriptive right. correlated? Uh, of course, no causality either way, we can't say, but it is an interesting question. Maybe they're not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, Mary, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to make sure I also acknowledge the Webhead Center. Oh, yes. For coaching <laughs> and kind of advertising our not so new initiative anymore mm -hmm. that Mary is spearheading, whether had an um, initiative on gender inequality mm -hmm. that the number of us across the university are involved in, and is kind of really quite exciting for for us to work across disciplines. Yeah, and we're we're just so getting the website up mm -hmm. finally, mm -hmm. and. Um, <laughs> looking at Carrie because I couldn't hire her to help me. Although I think the WAP website is the most beautiful one at the university. <laughs> amazing. But um, we just got our website up and we have funding for graduate students and undergraduates 
and um, assistant and associate professors for research. So, and we'll talk to each other a lot more <laughs> once things get really off the ground. So, yeah, thank you very much. session today at 4.15 for any students um, who are looking for summer internship funding. If you're doing a gender-focused project, please come join us this room at 4.15. We'll see you there. And next week we have uh, Katie Baldiga-Kaufman in the seminar, and she's going to look at a question that I imagine some of you are interested in, the effect of sponsorship. So there's lots of rumor, but actually not that much good experimental evidence on what is the impact of having a sponsor. And she ran an experiment trying to see what the impact of sponsorship is on men and women. So we might see some of you next week. Mm -hmm. Thanks all for coming.